You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. About a year ago, Marvel Studios released Black Panther. We got some fans in here. The movie was a box office hit. And if you're not familiar with the storyline, here's the gist of the storyline. After a great catastrophe that takes the life of his father, Prince T'Challa returns to the African kingdom of Wakanda to take his rightful place as king. But before people will recognize him as king, before he is coronated, the tradition in Wakanda is that he has to welcome any contenders to battle, to combat at the proving grounds. And here's the idea. T'Challa's ability to rule and his right to rule as the king are both recognized by the people when he's able to take on any challenger to his throne and defeat them in battle. And so in the movie, uh, we come to the scene where Prince T'Challa is going to open up to any challengers to his throne. And in the scene, he's standing there. It's like a waterfall. The water's like knee high. And all of the tribes, all of the people in the kingdom are they're, they're, they're gathered around, but they're, they're in these, this tiered, like climbing up a mountain. It's almost like an amphitheater. And before the battle actually begins, before uh, the, the, the scene actually develops, it's set up like this. There's an announcement that's made that says victory comes by yield or by death. Anyone who challenges him, he's going to get the victory over them either by causing them to yield or by taking their life. But then this is what happens. So all these people are gathered around in this sort of tiered amphitheater. And one by one, a representative of each tribe speaks out and says, our tribe will not challenge today. In other words, they recognize that he is meant to be the king and they aren't interested in trying to challenge his right to rule. They're not interested in trying to buck his reign. But then there is someone who steps up to challenge King T'Challa, and his name is M'Baku. M'Baku gives this impassioned speech in which he expresses his dissatisfaction with the idea of T'Challa sitting on the throne. But before he even finishes his speech, T'Challa says, I accept your challenge. And he brings him to submission and demonstrates that he is the real king. He brings the challenger to submission and the people recognize him as king. Now, in God's story, after the great catastrophe that resulted in the death of his children, the Lord remains present in his creation. And he's intent on regaining for the recognition of his people his place on the throne. He is set on taking his rightful place as king. And in the beginning of God's story, he comes to his people and he gives them promises. He comes to them and he provides for them. But they have not yet really seen him flex as king. Before he constitutes them as a nation, 
Before he makes them a people, he he's interested in in getting wide recognition as the one who has the right and the ability to sit on the throne. In other words, he takes on every challenger to the throne. And the end result will be a victory by yield or by death. This is what we have in the story of God. And what God ought to hear from every single creature that he has made from every single human being in his world is this message. Our tribe will not challenge today because we should recognize his glory. We should recognize his majesty. We should recognize his wisdom and his power and recognize that we are not God. That's what he should hear from us. But in our passage for today, in the plague narrative, we see a representation of all those who are dissatisfied with the idea of the Lord sitting on the throne. In this representative passage, we see how God handles those who interrupt shalom in his world, peace, flourishing, the well-being of the world and the well-being of others. We see what God does with those who reject his reign. And because of the length of our text, this section stretches for a couple chapters. I have chosen these representative passages to give you a flavor of what God is out to do in the plague narrative development. But I want to look at the 30,000 foot view. And it's it's a passage that's too big for two points. So what I want to do is I want to roll through and I want to bring out some things that we learn from the plague narratives. I want want us to, to look at the plague narrative from the 30,000 foot view. This is just a representative sampling of things that we learn from the the plague narratives. But I want to get into this and I want us to begin thinking about the plagues and how the story is being told to communicate to us something of God's story and God's way in the world and ultimately of, of the gospel. So the first thing that I think we should consider Uh, From the plague narratives, the first thing I would say we learn is this. The plagues reveal the lies upon which the Egyptians have built their lives. The plagues reveal the lies upon which the Egyptians have built their lives. Now, last week I covered the initial encounter between Moses, Aaron and Pharaoh. And what I what I said was this. The the narrative is set up in such a way that we're meant to see that the battle is not between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. It's not between Pharaoh and Israel. The battle is between the Lord, Yahweh, and, and Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. That is the nature of the battle. Okay? But... Many of you, you know, in in school, you grew up, you've heard of the Greek pantheon, right? That that back in the day in Greece, they believed in a pantheon of gods, that there were many gods. What was a similar thing in Egypt? And what happens throughout the plagues is most of the plagues are somehow related to one of Egypt's deities. Now, they had lots of gods. They had lots of deities. By some people's count, dozens and dozens of deities. But... Most of these plagues, I think all but two of these plagues, is directly related to one of the gods of Egypt. It's like the Lord is stepping into their territory to expose them as impostures. They, they looked to these false gods 
for, for life. The God of the Nile. That was the God that was known as the God of resurrection that rose up out of the Nile. They looked to these gods for fruitfulness and fertility. They looked to these gods for protection. They looked to these gods for their everything. So you can imagine what it meant for them in their context for the God of Israel to systematically cruise through all of their deities and shut them down. Do you see what the Lord is doing? He's exposing the lies upon which they have built their lives. And I want you to understand something. Remember the first audience. Remember the first audience. They're they're looking at this. And we're going to come back to this in in a later point. But remember the first audience. They witnessed this idea that the gods of the nations were nothing compared to the Lord. He's shutting it down. They built their lives around these things that they thought were true. But here's the deal. You need to see this. The Lord deconstructs those gods and those 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 false promises, those false assurances. He deconstructs in order to reconstruct. A lot of times that's the that's what God is doing in our in our pain. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone. We can't hear sometimes in the successes. We can't hear sometimes in the abundance. And we don't realize it, but slowly and surely, we begin to build our lives around the lie that money will do it for us. Money will make us happy. If I just had a little more, just a little more. If I didn't have to pay for childcare, I'd be good. I'd be all good. I'm not trying to hurt nobody in here. I'm not trying to hurt nobody. But we begin to construct our lives around these lives. And and a lot of times God turns up the pressure on us. Things get tough at work. God turns up the pressure on us. Sometimes it's a very painful thing for God to remove our idols from us because we love them so dearly. Our hearts are so attached. But God is interested in revealing the lies upon which we build our lives. That's the first thing we learned. The second thing we learn, the plagues reveal the sovereign authority of God. We've heard about the sovereignty of God before, haven't we? We've heard that God has all the power, but we need to get more into this. Here's the deal. Pharaoh does not have a problem with Israel having a God. There were many gods in Egypt. Pharaoh doesn't have a problem with with Israel having a God. What he has a problem with is the idea that Israel's God can tell him how to live his life. He has a problem with this God telling him what to do. He has an authority issue. And so do we. We have an authority issue, but God is revealing himself here. He is not negotiating with Pharaoh. This is not a negotiation. He's showing patience in this process which we're going to get to in a minute. He shows patience in the process, but he is out to demonstrate for his people and for all the world, everyone watching, that he is sovereign and authoritative. Now, I keep telling you to remember the first audience because it's important, that context. That context is important because remember, this is Israel on the other side of the Exodus. 
But not only that, this is Israel on the other side of receiving the Ten Commandments. And what was the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And the reason why Israel was to have no other gods before the Lord is because there were no other gods besides him. These plagues are a gift to all those who have ears to hear. That these gods, they're they're nothing before me. Through the plagues, the Lord says they cannot help. They cannot protect. They cannot save. They are nothing. They don't deserve you. Do you realize that your gods, your false gods, your idols, they don't deserve you. They don't deserve your love. They don't deserve you. you. You have more dignity than that. You have greater value than that. Your love and its direction is more precious than to be set upon a false god. This is, this is a powerful thing because here's the deal. The question that Pharaoh asks in chapter 5 verse 2. Do you remember the question he asks? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? You know, we're still asking that same question today. That's the question that rings in all of our hearts. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And the, and the plagues help us to see who he is and why we should obey his voice. As, as James, well, James Weldon Johnson once said, uh, channeling an old school black preacher, your arms are too short to box with God. He's sovereign in his authority. You shall have no other gods. They, they can't help. They can't protect. They can't save. They're nothing and they don't deserve you. But the Lord is saying, I can help. I can protect. I can save. I am everything and I do deserve you. I do deserve you. Even though you don't deserve me, I deserve you. The Lord judges the other gods and those who worship them. And you know what? This plot line, it's repeated. It's cyclical. It comes back again because when Israel is in exile, the Lord, uh, the Lord speaks his word through the prophet Isaiah. And he he tries to get it through to them that he is incomparable, that there's no one that compares to him. He'll say things like uh, that he'll, he'll use these images in like Isaiah chapter 40. He'll say, who has measured the waters, the oceans in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has carried the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord seek to enlighten him and who brought him the way of wisdom? And he says, surely the nations are like a drop from a bucket. A drop from a bucket. When you take a bucket of water in the ancient Near East, you take a bucket of water. There are little drops that fall off. You don't give them a second thought. He said the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as worthless and less than nothing. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. 
And then later on, he moves through. You need to read Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 48. Later on, he's going to chide them for their idols. And he describes the process by which someone crafts an idol. The process of choosing the wood. And he begins to carve the wood. And then the metallurgy. And he hammers out the metal. And and he puts it all together. And he fashions a god. And then he bows down to it. And later on, he mocks the false gods of the nations. And he says... When trouble comes, you go and grab your idols and you throw them on your back because you have to carry those gods. But I'm the God who carries his people. You can tell the difference between a true God and a false God. Because in this passage, a false God cannot protect their people. A false God cannot secure their people. But a true God can. He's exposing their gods to show them that those gods cannot help them. They have to help those gods. But he is the Lord and he's holy. That means he's not like them. He's not like any of the other gods. So whom will you compare me? I want you to see that there is none like me. That's what he says in chapter nine. That's why he brings the plagues. The next thing we see through the plagues is this. Though it may seem delayed, God will most certainly judge evil. This story is a continuation of the ancient story that goes all the way back to Genesis. The seed of the woman in conflict with the seed of the serpent. And I want you to remember that the Pharaoh at this time wore a headdress and it had a little serpent on the front. To symbolize his power. So can you visualize it? Because by the end of this, there is going to be uh, a partial fulfillment of the crushing of the serpent's head. That's going to lead us to the true crushing of the serpent's head. In this text, God confronts oppressive power and historical evil in real time. And it's not accidental that the Pharaoh is not named. Pharaoh's not a name. It's a title. Pharaoh's not named. He's left general. Why? On purpose. To show us that God will judge evil in real time, in history. The concern of the narrative is not just with a particular Pharaoh. He's a representative of all those forces that resist God's rule and sabotage the shalom he has always intended for the world. The evil and oppressive policies of the Pharaoh are evidence of how God will deal real historic justice. He'll bring justice against corrupt leaders in real time. He'll bring justice to corrupt political systems in real time. He'll bring justice to systemic evils that crush people and make ruin of society in real time. And listen. If he doesn't do it through the instrumentality of his people in the world right now, he will do it on that final day himself. And because of the majesty, dignity, holiness, wisdom and purposes of God, listen to me, we must humble ourselves in reverence and defer to his timing. He's still sovereignly authoritative. 
So let us not rise up in sin because we don't see God dealing it on our timeline with the sin out there. Don't match it with your own sin in here. By questioning his wisdom on the timing of it. He gives us freedom to ask, how long, O Lord? He dignifies that question in in the Psalter. But we must humble ourselves under his wisdom. He's doing many things at once and all things well. What is he doing in the process of the development? I'm going to tell you what he's doing. Remember this. Israel did not leave Egypt by themselves. The story tells us that there was a mixed multitude that rolled up out of Egypt. That tells us that some of the Egyptians were like, I'm I'm going to follow him. Our gods are dead on the mat. I'm going to follow him. And it took that process of him systematically breaking it down in his wisdom, taking every God to task and showing them to be nothing. It took that process. And Israel even suffered under the first three plagues. It wasn't until the fourth plague that God creates a distinction between his people and his enemies. And he begins to target the plagues toward his enemies and he separates out his people. But the the people of God have to endure for a while. And I'm sure that they were wondering how things were getting worse at that current moment. But God is patient. He doesn't want any to perish. He demonstrates his patience and we must trust his timing. Listen, there's a distinction between taking responsibility and playing our part and working for justice as as people who belong to a just God. And jumping the gun to take matters into our own hands. Vengeance. The Lord instructs his people through the Apostle Paul. Leave room for judgment. Leave room for vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. We need to trust his wisdom in that. Because he will certainly judge evil. Remember what we said last week. Another big overarching principle that we see in this text is that if God does not bring you to repentance, he will bring you to judgment. It's playing out like this. The next thing I want us to learn from this text is this. We must beware of false repentance. Pharaoh is a picture of false repentance. You see the cycle, don't you? Throughout the plague narrative, we see Pharaoh waffling back and forth between outright defiance and what appears to be repentance. Oh, I've surely sinned this time. Pray for me, Moses. But then he hardens his heart again. It's back and forth. He's blown back and forth. It's false repentance. He has regret, but not repentance. He witnesses the mighty acts of the Lord. Remember what he's seeing. And yet he hardens his heart. He buckles under the weight of God's judgment, but he will not believe. He buckles, but he will not believe. God is wrecking his shop and he is so hardened that he brings down the entire nation upon the hardness of his own heart. He ruins the whole Egyptian family because his heart is hard. You see what his sin is spreading. It's it's metastasizing. 
because his repentance is false. Though the Lord continues to humiliate him, he refuses to humble himself. The Lord continues to humiliate him, and yet he refuses to humble himself. In verse 17 of chapter 9, the, the, the Lord says, You are still exalting yourself against my people. What do I have to do to wake you up? What more do I have to do to get your attention, Pharaoh? And we have to ask ourselves the same question. What more does the Lord have to do for you to wake you up? The text tells us about the hard heart of Pharaoh. Now, listen, this whole development, it rubs it rubs some of us the wrong way because it would appear that Pharaoh doesn't have any option in this whole thing. The Lord tells us that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't it seem like Pharaoh's the victim here. Doesn't it seem like this isn't this isn't just or this is just the the unfair fate that's inevitable because God has said it's going to be. A close reading of the text presents a more complex picture. Okay, first contextually in Egyptian culture, the Egyptian thinking around the afterlife was that an individual's heart was weighed against the feather of truth and justice on the scales. And if their heart was heavier than truth and justice, then they were devoured. There's a sort of contextualization picture here, like God speaking the language of the Egyptians and Israel who had been in Egypt and had been surrounded by Egyptian culture for that time. It's like he's putting it in context and he's saying, this man is most certainly guilty of unrighteousness and there is no truth in him. That's the contextual picture. The scales reveal no truth in him. The cultural context and narrative is confirming Pharaoh's guilt. But then there's the textual and theological picture that we should take into consideration. There are three verbs that are used to indicate the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. They signify to be heavy, to be strong, to be hard. And they indicate to varying degrees the obstinacy, the single-mindedness, the stubbornness, the lack of regard. Ten times it tells us that, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And ten times that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But what you have to appreciate is this. Though there is an announcement from the Lord in, cha in earlier chapters, I believe chapter 3 and chapter 7, there are announcements beforehand that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. The way that it develops is that God does not harden Pharaoh's heart until the sixth plague. Before that, it's all Pharaoh. He's hardening his own heart. So what the picture that we're the the picture that we're getting here in terms of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is that God becomes the hardener of Pharaoh's heart as an intensification of Pharaoh's own character. In other words, God gives him over to a depraved mind of his own making and his own maintenance. His hardness accumulates by his own willful obstinance until God enters the process to give Pharaoh up to the irreversible consequences of his own persistent sin. God does not originate Pharaoh's hardness 
and persistent sinful refusal to submit. There simply comes a point at which God seals his fate. The fate that he chose himself after being exposed to the mighty works of God. After being exposed to the miraculous things that God was doing. It became clear. And God advanced the picture of who Pharaoh was all along. And no one in Israel would have had a problem with God's judgment and God's justice in this situation. I say this often, but I feel like it it bears repeating because we need to be reminded of this. We we need to remember that if you are going to have justice, then you must have judgment. There are a lot of people that don't realize their thinking is in conflict because they want justice. They'll go march for justice, but they don't they don't like the idea of a God who judges. But here's the deal. Ask victims of abuse what they think about their perpetrators escaping judgment. Ask those who have suffered at the hands of violent people what they think about those people escaping justice. Ask those who have suffered losing all of their life savings because of white collar crime what they think about those people who committed the white collar crimes getting off scot-free. What it tells us is that you can only reject the notion of judgment from a position of privilege where you have never suffered those injustices, where you've never felt it. That's one of the reasons why we need the global church, because here's a here's a frightening thing that we need to consider. It's sobering. If you aren't longing for justice and judgment, you may be the target. If you're not longing for it to be made right, if you're not longing for it, if you're not crying out, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come make it right. Judge evil. Deal with the the crookedness and the brokenness in this world. You might be the crooked or broken person who will be judged. It's sobering. It gives us warning. Listen, the, the plagues show us why God rescues his people. Look in the text. Let my people go so that they may frolic in the wilderness now. Let my people go so that they can continue to live selfish lives of disregard for their neighbors. No. Let me get back in here. My context, they dry up sometimes. <laughs> let, my, let my people go that they may serve me. God brings the plagues on Egypt to strike reverence in the hearts of his people and a recognition of his commitment to them. And his saving power and his liberation so that they will serve him. God did not save us to set us on our merry little way to live lives of selfishness and self-regard. He saves us so that we will serve him. That's the sweep of the story. But finally, I want to say this. The plague narrative leads us to the good news of Jesus Christ. In the rest of the story of scripture, what we will see is that not only does Pharaoh have hardness of heart, but God's people will struggle with hardness of heart. They will have what the Lord says are stiff necks, like the animal that resists being led. 
We face that struggle, don't we? We know what it's like to have hardness of heart. We know what it's like to stand guilty, lacking truth and righteousness. The fact of the matter is that the plagues show us what all those who resist the Lord deserve. Judgment. But the wonder of the gospel, listen to me, the wonder of the gospel is that God brings the plagues on his son. The wonder of the gospel is that God brings the plagues on his son so that he doesn't have to bring the plagues on you. This episode leads us to the gospel. Listen, at the very beginning of the passage, it's amazing to see Aaron's staff thrown down, becoming a snake, and then swallowing up the serpents of the magicians. But it's an absolute wonder to see the son of God thrown down, become a man, and then swallow up death. In the Exodus, Moses proves himself by the miracle of turning his staff into a serpent. In the gospel, Jesus proves himself by the miracle of turning death into a doorman and the grave into a waiting room and sinners into saints. There's better news in the gospel. In the Exodus, the Nile, the source of life, is struck and turned to blood, spreading death. But in the gospel, Christ, the source of life, is struck and the blood begins to flow, spreading life. In the Exodus, the false gods are judged to free God's people. But in the gospel, the true God is judged to free God's people. In the Exodus, the Lord's wrath falls on a hard-hearted king to loosen his grip on God's people. But in the gospel, the wrath of God falls on a soft-hearted king to tighten his grip on his people. This is good news for us this morning. In the Exodus, the Lord judges a king who resists to the bitter end. And in the gospel, the Lord judges a king who submits to the bitter end. How can the Lord set his people apart so that the plagues do not fall on them? He targets the plagues on his son, Jesus Christ, their substitute. He targets the plagues on the mediator. Pharaoh begged for the prayers of the mediator because he needed forgiveness. Jesus offers his prayers as the mediator, extending forgiveness. Because of the hardness of Pharaoh, the entire creation begins to unravel. But because of the goodness of Jesus, the whole creation will be put back together. In the Exodus, darkness fell on Pharaoh and Egypt, but in the gospel, The wonder of wonders is that darkness fell on the Son of God at Calvary. In the Exodus, the Sun God is revealed to be nothing when darkness falls on Egypt. But in the Gospel, the Son of God is revealed to be everything when darkness falls on Calvary. The question today is this. Here's the question. Can you say... To the king, my tribe will not challenge. Are are you resisting him? Will his victory over you be by submission or death? This is the question we must all ask ourselves. And when you know that he is your king, when you know in your heart that you are of a mind to say, We will not challenge today. And every day it is your prayer that you will not challenge today. Well, then you can know the hope and the joy of God's freedom in Jesus Christ. And you can be the kind of person that makes him known 
He did all this, not only in the Exodus, but in the gospel, so that we would know that there is no one like him. And he wants your neighbors to know the same. He wants your community to know the same. He wants you to know the same. So let's lean into these truths. Let's pray them into our lives and into the lives of our brothers and sisters in our community groups. Let's pray this into the life of our neighborhood. That Northeast D.C. would know that there's no one like him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We're grateful that there is life and renewal and hope in your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to look to Jesus, to cast our eyes on him, our gaze on him, to set our love on him, to receive his wisdom, his correction. Lord, we pray today that no one would walk out of here deceived, living in false repentance, being one thing on Sunday and another thing Monday through Saturday. From the way that we deal with one another to the way that we deal with our coworkers to the way that we use our social media. Lord, let it be seen in us that we serve a God who is holy, that there's no one like him and that our lives are a picture of awestruck love. So, Lord, do this great work among us, we pray in Jesus' name.